First up tonight, uh, I know we've forgotten about the bushfires. Well, I don't mean that if you're in the midst of uh, the disaster that caused the loss of life and property. You're, um, you are conscious that it's an ongoing disaster, but it's been rolled over uh, most comprehensively by this virus, hasn't it? We're going to look at the bushfires tonight and talk to one of the world's top experts on the on bushfire and fire in the environment, Stephen Pine. He's written extensively about blazes here and in the United States where he lives. He believes we're now in what he's calling a fire age, a pyrocene, that's comparable to the scale of the ice ages that had massive impacts on the earth. After the horrendous summer we've had, wonder what that means for Australia. Love you to join that conversation too. Uh, the ABC's business editor in Verinda will be in to explain how the federal government decides who is it's going to provide financial support to. Um, it's reluctant to dive in and bail out Virgin Australia. We'll discuss why a bit later as well. Uh, now, uh, the <laughs> the search for the perfect spaghetti bolognese a bit later on too. With this virus keeping everyone at home, there's a fair bit of home cooking going on and the national dish, which is probably spaghetti bolognese, I'm sure is getting a workout. We'll talk with uh, Pat Nurse about the right way to do it and the wrong way. I'd love you to join that conversation a little later as well. Chance to win uh, the Mighty Fridge Magnet, of course, in the challenge and a wrap-up of the latest coronavirus news to uh, wind up the program at the end. As usual, that hour is open to you for your questions, comments, observations and discussion. That's what's on the agenda. Hope you can join us. Nightlife with Philip Clark on ABC Radio. In the midst of the current coronavirus crisis, the bushfire emergency of last summer seems suddenly, strangely, years ago. It's funny how it's receded into the distance of memory for many of us and the public consciousness, even if it is still a present and ongoing disaster for those whose communities, whose property and economies were destroyed by the massive fires over summer last year. Just when many coastal and other communities that depend on visitors and tourist traffic to boost their economies were looking to get back on their feet, the virus crisis has come out of nowhere to dash those hopes. It's an anxious and worrying time for all of us. It's common, though, to hear now of people suggesting, well, the virus will change the way we live. Perhaps with the fires that savaged us, uh, I wonder whether, whether the fires that savaged us will also cause a new way of thinking, a new spirit of cooperation, a new way of looking at the landscape and how we live in it. We heard that too. Will the need will the will the fires cause us to think differently about fire and the ways to use it? Again, perhaps. Stephen Pine is one of the world's leading authorities on the history and uses of fire, and he's written extensively about the American experience as well as Australia. In his book, The Still Burning Bush, he looks at the history of fire in Australia and what we've tried to do to contain it. He's an environmental historian, has worked for many years at Arizona State University. And he joins us tonight where it's early in the morning. So, Stephen, good evening from us and very a very early morning to you and welcome to Nightlife. <laughs> well, good day to you. Thank you for the invitation. It's uh, <laughs> you, you, Your book's on the, on the, the topic of, of fire and, and our relationship to it. Take an international perspective, but of course you've written extensively about Australia as well. In this country, we have endless arguments and debates over what went before us and what's to come after us and what we should be doing now. When Europeans arrived here in Australia, they saw that the Aborigines lit fires. What did they think about that? What was their attitude towards Aboriginal use of fire? Well, it was mixed. Uh, Australia is very interesting in that we have a, a pretty uh, a pretty good record uh, comparatively, of what Aboriginals uh, did with fire, contrasting, say, with Spain uh, and Portugal and others, because the Enlightenment had occurred. So the early British contacts were were naturalists, like Joseph Blank, Banks and others. They were interested in natural history. So we get records, we get some, which we don't have for earlier waves of exploration. So Australia is really... Uh, important for that. They were startled, um, and uh, they were stunned by what they called the ferocity of 
fires in these uh, tropical uh, type environments. Uh, it was hot, it was dry, it was very unlike uh, Britain, and uh, the character of fire surprised them. They were also uh, astonished by the extent of burning uh, that that went on. Uh, Aboriginal burning had a hard time understanding it. But before we put too much uh, of a spin on sort of the, the indigenous and the European contrast, we, we need to remember that Europe had a very long tradition and a very uh, severe one in forestry that was critical of fire. Any use of fire immediately stigmatized the people who, who practiced it as primitive. And this applied to European peasants mm -hmm. as well as to people in other parts of the world. So in many ways, it, it's a class division. It's an elite division. And so any use of fire um, was considered uh, irrational. Uh, and the goal of, of enlightenment, the goal of civilization should be to find replacements for it. So you begin with that, and that applies to you know settlers in Australia in rural contexts who used it. It, it applied to uh, it applied to any any kind of landscape use of fire. Hmm. That's interesting because so when they came here, they were, I mean Cook and others as they sailed up the east coast remarked on the many fires they saw from the from from mm -hmm. at sea and uh at, but they came here with a view that 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 this was somehow uh letting yourself down that this wasn't the way to approach the environment that a, pro a proper european way to approach the environment was to was to prevent this happening was is that what you're saying yeah and it goes back a long uh, a long way um Fire was considered dangerous, uh, and it was considered wasteful. Uh, people hated the smoke, um, you know, a lot of familiar reasons. But they also um, really disliked following. And uh, they saw it, you know, as here, here we're on the, the cusp of famine continually, hmm. and you're taking land out of production, and you're just leaving it there, and then you're burning it, which makes it worse. But I think they got it reversed, and the land wasn't, followed um, wasn't burned just to get rid of it as waste it was actually grown in order to be burned what they needed was the fire ecology effects of fire that kind of jolt to get the system back running so in many ways it was applied fire ecology and European science and intellectual tradition was not able to understand that it was done at a practical level by people living on the ground who had to use fire to make their world habitable so there, you've got that tension, and then it, it certainly imposed uh, on Australia and European forestry, which became a kind of global effort and a kind of state-sponsored conservation project. It was all over the world, not just by the British, the French, and Dutch did it. The U.S. got it secondhand. Uh, and foresters were ill-equipped to really appreciate any kind of natural role for fire or any kind of productive use of it and saw it as their first mission to remove fire. That was imposed on Australia. It was a hopeless uh, task. Um, and Australian foresters were really remarkable. They were the one group in the world who succeeded in rebelling against that and turned it around and said, no, we need to learn from what we see of fire in the landscape. We need to learn the long tradition of burning here, and we can discipline this in useful ways and make it a foundation so that we can protect ourselves against really uh, savage bushfires and we can begin using fire in constructive ways. They were the only forestry group to do that, and mm. that was consolidated after World War II, and it's it's a remarkable story. Mm. Let's yeah, let's get to that in a moment because I, I find that whole that whole <laughs> that whole section of the argument very very interesting. Could we stay with the Europeans arriving here for a while? Because sure. you're right. I mean, the, the the whole history of of fire, and I, I think the phrase you use in your book is seems to be an argument between those who want to light fires and those who want to fight fires. And uh, mm -hmm. this brings you know all the, the the great two streams of argument and approach around. It's only in recent time, relatively recent times anyway, that uh, I mean, historians like Bill Gamage and others have talked mm -hmm. of the idea that. Fire was used by indigenous people to fashion whole landscapes. That much of what 
Europeans saw as the open grasslands west of the Great Dividing Range, the, the glorious Australia Felix of the, of the Western District of Victoria and, and elsewhere in the country too, all up the East Coast. Uh, these, were, these were landscapes that were deliberately created by fire over hundreds of perhaps thousands of years by Indigenous people. What do you think of that? I mean, has that argument been overstated, do you think? Well, it can be overgeneralized. I mean, Australia is a large place. It has a lot of different landscapes and a lot of different biotas, and they're all going to respond to fire differently. So there is not one universal pattern that, that fits. There are, in a sense, though, universal practices, and they express themselves in, in, in particular ways. So Australia, uh, for millions of years, in its evolution, geologic evolution as a continent, became more fire-prone. And uh, when people arrived, they, in a sense, found ways to massage that characteristic. And in many ways, fire is our, our most um, powerful technology. And so it, it played very well into uh, humanity's strengths. So I do think that it was pretty pervasive, expressed itself in different ways. Not every place is burned every year, of course, and all this kind of thing. But what we see in Australia is not unique to Australia. I, I've seen it the world over. You, you can see it in Africa. You can see it in, in, in Europe. Um, one of the uh, major foresters of the uh, British uh, project, a guy named David Hutchins, wrote a long book uh, about Australia and forestry and fire. And uh, part of it, he, he he's given a service leave. He can go back for six months to, and he's decided he's going to Europe. He's going to the heartland, and here he is in Germany. He's near the Black Forest area, and the whole place is filled with smoke because people were using a kind of agroforestry, fire-based uh, farming. And he was stunned. He said, "This is what I saw in Africa, and this this isn't supposed to happen in Europe." It did, but uh, elites wanted. To, to remove that. And I'm sorry to sort of beat up on the elites here, but they really got it wrong in this case. They mm. got it wrong in the U.S. They got it wrong almost every place they went. And it's been, it's only in the past few decades, really, that we've we've seen um, a conversion and a sense that fire may be uh, necessary, not simply something that's going to happen like tornadoes or, or cyclones. It's something that actually is built into the fabric and can be used to enhance the ecological integrity of a place. It can be used to damage it, but a recognition that people are, are the keystone species for fire. You know, we really have a species monopoly. This is what we do that no other creature does. Other animals, you know, dig holes in the ground and knock over trees. We do fire. And that is that is a very recent realization. And uh, Australia, Australia is a wonderful place uh, for anyone interested in fire because it is so fire prone. Mm. But it's it's a fire power because it also has a cultural engagement with fire that I don't see any place else. You've got art paintings that go back to Aboriginal bark paintings, a continuous record. You've got a literature. You've got a science, a world-class science. Uh, you've got institutions. There's just a density of cultural engagement with fire that I can't think of any other place matching. Hmm. Why? What happened? I mean, after all, you 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 live in America. What this debate that happened in Australia is not unique to us to Australia, of course. No, <laughs> it happened. It happened. What, what what happened in America? Were the attitudes in America the same? There were the arguments between those who want to light and those who want to fight. Yes, they were, and pretty much along the same lines. Uh, uh, the, the great the institution that became our 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 sort of oracle and engineer for managing fire and landscape was forestry. And uh, the early American foresters looked to Europe. They actually, two of our, our first chiefs of the National Forest Service trained under the British system. They went to uh, Nancy, France, and then um, uh, the second one went to India uh, to see what was going on and so forth. So they carried with them the same uh, the same sentiments, and we had the same debate. In fact, our first professional forester was actually an, uh, an immigrant from Prussia, and he looked over and said, the whole thing is a matter of uh, loose morals and bad habits, and there's no excuse to have this kind of burning. This would not be tolerated in a place. Well, Germany, uh, Central Europe, doesn't have a natural basis for fire. It's really the anomalous landscape. It doesn't have wet-dry cycles. It doesn't have dry lightning. So, 
their vision of the world made sense where they were, but they took that as normative and tried to distribute that everywhere. We went through the same debate. It was a very um, hard-fought debate. We had a great fire in 1910, similar effect for us as the 1939 uh, Black Friday fires in Australia. And that brought to the surface debate whether we should begin with fire lighting or fire fighting. And there were foresters, of course, were for fire fighting, eliminating fire. This is the first step to making a rational landscape. And against that were a whole congregate of, of odd people, writers, um, uh, settlers, uh, timber owners, state engineer of California, this whole, this whole group that said, no, we should emulate the American Indian and practice what they call light burning which was in those areas that could be surface burned routinely, were regularly burned and gave us the forests we wanted. And this was a really hard fought and soon polarized and politicized discussion. It lasted uh, well into the 1920s after the 1910 fires. It had started before that. And we could go before that. The first example in literature I can think of is uh, British in India, 1870s, trying to impose a kind of standard uh, forest reserve system. And the first question at, their, at a conference, the first national conference to discuss this, said, is fire control possible? And if possible, is it desirable? And right at that start, you have the split. And the split is those who are administrators, those who are academics, um, those who see fire as a problem of social control and environmental management argue we need to dampen down fire and eliminate it as much as possible, find alternatives. And all the people who are in the field say, no, this is nonsense. We're not going to do it. We will actually unhinge the landscape if we do it. Mm. So the argument is actually a very old one. And it goes through different avatars and iterations, but it's still with us. I know. It's a, <laughs> that's one of the fascinating <laughs> things about, about your book. I mean, and it can induce, I must say, a, a great sense of weariness after a while. Because <laughs> for, that, for someone like myself and others who followed this in Australia, it, it's, a, it's one of these debates that, I mean, people argue this about America too, I know, but it's one of these debates in Australia that never seems to get resolved. I mean, to burn or not yeah. to burn. There's environmentalists, there's foresters, every, everyone wades in and everyone's got a very passionate opinion. I mean, on one side, you have all those who say, oh, no, 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 you have to reduce the fuel load. The other says, yeah. that is environmental devastation. I mean, you might, you know, the debate between those who want yeah. to light and those who want to fight just goes on and on. But you say it's gone on and on everywhere, still going on everywhere. It's really heightened in Australia, I think, because uh, you're so close to it. Uh, so much of the, the European settlement in Australia is in areas that can be threatened by fire. And it, it's recurring at an intensity hmm. and frequency that, that really isn't matched elsewhere. I mean, Canada, boreal forest, its great plains, its grasslands, has a huge amount of fire. And it's a really fire-driven landscape in many ways. But you see nothing. There, there are no paintings. There's no literature. Uh, there's an interesting science, but in many ways sort of punching below their weight. Uh, Australia is different. In the U.S., I think the debate is over whether fire belongs or not. It's pretty clear it does, and we keep finding more and more areas where we need to put it in. The debate is over how to do it and under what conditions. And in Australia, what was fascinating, I found fascinating, was that the way in which the fire stick acts as a kind of lightning rod and, and fulcrum and symbol and club. And all of that focuses on what we should do relative to, to burning. And it gets, um, it, it becomes a kind of identity politics. And so it's very difficult to sort through what, what in a particular place is the right approach, mm. because it gets generalized into these cases, what, what tribe do you belong to? And that makes it very difficult. Exactly, exactly right. It's become a total case of identity politics. You're either, you're either for us or against us on, on these yeah. things. And the, the two sides don't seem to be talking to each other. Uh, we, Australia, you say in your book that Australia was going down, contrary to what was happening elsewhere, was going down the path of using fire to control fire, forestry practices in particular, and lighting fires became quite common in forestry practice, in the snowy in, in, in particular. But then came the environmental backlash, and that hasn't gone away. W why did that happen, and what happened? 
It's a great question, uh, and it's a it's a great research topic to continue. Um, Australian foresters were the one forestry group uh, to convert to burning, and they saw uh, they looked at the long history of Aboriginal use. They looked at the way in which the eucalypts, in particular, but many of the other biotas in Australia, had accommodated fire, and they decided that fire belonged. It was going to happen, needed to be there, but it could be disciplined by better science. So led particularly by uh, Alan MacArthur, they began ways to sort of characterize fire and bring a degree of sort of intellectual constraints to it, uh, guidance to it. At the same time, they were looking at uh, institutional arrangements and wanted to bring uh, some larger, some better order to your uh, volunteer brigades, which are, are one of the... Um, real triumphs of Australia uh, fire, and to bring, again, a, a degree of additional order to that. And that, that they, they countered, their counterexample to what they were trying to do was not just the British uh, experience, which was now gone, but the American experience. Because mm. after World War II and Korea, the U.S. had an enormous amount of war surplus equipment. And the U.S. Forest Service was given priority access to a lot of that. And then through the Forest Service, this could be downloaded to the state. So almost overnight, we have this mechanization of fire control. So we've got air tankers and helicopters. We've got you know bulldozers and all kinds of military equipment, half-tracks for heaven's sakes, outfitted with plows and, um, and pumps. And so we, we – begin a kind of cold war on fire. And the Australians saw this with horror. They said, well, not only is it misguided, it's not, you're not going to fight your way uh, through this problem, but it's hugely expensive and it's inappropriate for Australia. So they had a counterexample, and I see it actually as a kind of Australian nationalism that they had managed to take out of indigenous Australian experience and um, landscape and history, something that was unique to Australia. And they were alone. And in the U.S., uh, foresters were the ones who kept pushing for continued fire control well into the 60s. And then it broke. And the environmental movement was very keen to reintroduce fire for lots of reasons. And um, the, the old orders collapsed between, say, 1968 and 1978. All of the federal agencies converted, and many of the state agencies uh, began to change. And the idea was that fire by prescription, some kind of orderly burning, hmm. should be uh, the national goal. We needed to restore fire. That was the goal, but it was a revolution from the top, and it was been very hard to make it happen on the ground. Some places have succeeded. Florida burns about a million hectares a year by prescription. Other areas uh, struggle. California, wherever wherever you start, whatever you want in California, it the fire story ends up with suppression. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. Exactly, you say, and 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 what you describe as as war surpluses continued now too. We, 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 we've developed this extraordinarily expensive system, which gets more expensive year by year of fighting fires at massive cost with hundreds of aeroplanes and trucks and, and people. Uh, and the idea is that fire is an aberration, something that when it happens needs to be stopped. You, you say this is, this is, uh, well, it's patently and historically, not wrong because it's, it just isn't. It isn't. It isn't what has happened. Fire has always been with us, and we need to think about it differently. We need to live with it, as the saying goes. Uh, there, let's be clear. There are plenty of places we don't want fire. We don't want fire running through our communities. Uh, we don't want feral flames down the streets and uh, through our houses. And we need to be able to control it. And that's going to require a lot of technology. It's going to require some uh, scientific sophistication and forecasting abilities. All of these things are legitimate. But you can't project that over the landscape uh, everywhere. Hmm. And you need to be selective. Because the more you suppress fire, actually what our hotshot crews are, are sort of specialized sort of migrant labor groups who go around to these large fires, you will hear them say, hey, we're not putting these out, we're putting them off. And in some ways it just, it creates what's called a fire paradox, that the more you eliminate fire from these landscapes, um, 
the more it's going to come back in a form that you don't want. And not every fire is the same. Uh, one of the important concepts of fire is uh, fire science is a fire regime. And, and Australia was really uh, critical in promoting this idea originally, that you're, something is not adapted to fire. That's like saying it's adapted to water or rain. It's adapted to particular patterns. And if you change the pattern, then that fire is no longer helpful. It may be damaging. It may be ecologically wrong. But mm. So you need to get the, the pattern right. But as people begin discussing all of these things, there's a tendency to invoke a kind of precautionary principle and say, well, let's keep fire out until we can sort all the science out. Well, you're never going to sort all the science out, for one thing. And I would argue, particularly in places like Australia, you need to keep some kind of a controlled fire on the landscape. It may not be ideal, it may not meet everybody's goals, but some kind of fire is better than none because you maintain a fire culture and you can begin to tweak and work with those fires. Whereas if you take it out, which can actually be done fairly easily on a short-term basis, it's very hard to put it back in and very dangerous and tricky. And that's that's what we've learned, it's really tough. The U.S. right now, we're going, in the western U.S., we're going to a kind of hybrid model. It's not between lighting and fighting. It's finding ways to combine the two. Hmm. And they're working with wildfires, on, often on large scales, and uh, to get some good some good burning in. Yep. So it's, it's a paradox. <laughs> I, I'm talking with environmental <laughs> historian Stephen Pine. He's a... He's uh, an expert on fire, and particularly fires in Australia, about which he's written extensively, but also he's written extensively and researched fires um, uh, and the use of fire around the world, particularly in, in America. If you're there, you might have questions to ask too, by the way. We've got lines free, one three hundred eight hundred triple two, one three hundred eight hundred triple two. Text on 0467922702. I mean, the divide is probably <laughs> illustrated best by Sue from Ballarat, who's texted, texted in, Stephen, saying, Phil, the term fuel load is a misnomer. It's a made-up concept used as an excuse to destroy habitat. People just should not be allowed to live in the bush. It's ridiculous that we build homes in the bush at all. Lock up the forests, keep out of them, and we'll all be better off. Does that well? But that's a view. I mean, it's a view that's got quite a bit sure. of traction as well. I mean, Sue, you know, Sue believes this. I mean, lots of people. This, this view has a lot of traction in in Australia as well. You say that this. You would say that this view, in a sense, denies the history of of what people are living in. Well, and also the role in which people were important in shaping those landscapes, many of which we value. Uh, we, we've only become more recently aware of how extensively people have, through fire or fire interacting with other practices, shaped landscapes. In uh, the U.S., we, we had, uh, in, uh, t- just to step back a second to answer the question, This is these are questions of values, hmm. and the culture has to decide what it wants. And um, we keep trying to defer these to science, but they're not really scientific questions. Uh, science, you know, can tell us what what the options, what certain options might be, but it, it can't decide. Those are those are a legitimate social call. So um, that's certainly something you can do. Um, and I think I would argue one of the interesting developments in Australia is the the role of cultural burning, the recovery, in a sense, of Aboriginal burning as a way of um, reaffirming uh, that heritage and and presence. So you've got all kinds of competing interests, even where people want to burn. Are we burning for ecological reasons? Are we burning for fuel reduction? Are we burning for cultural reasons? Are we burning as a part of agricultural management? What? And I'm I'm good with all of those. You know, we don't need just one thing. Uh, fire fire is a shapeshifter. It takes its character from its surroundings, and we we need all kinds of fires for all kinds of purposes. So, and the question should really be, how should this be on the landscape and in what, and in what forms? Um, but uh, uh, the question uh, is exactly, or the statement was exactly mm. correct, that these are really social decisions. They're social and, decisions, uh, yeah. Why don't we, yeah. we're obsessed with inquiries into fires in Australia. <laughs> uh, after the 2003 fires, as you say, there were no less than seven separate inquiries. We've launched a Royal Commission into the current fires this summer. Yeah. No no big fire goes past. We don't have an inquiry into it. Do we ever learn anything or listen to anybody? There can't be much more to discuss. 
Well, that's that's a that's a point many people are now raising. I mean, what what more can we what more can we do? There there's certainly a, a development of political gesturing or even political theater involved, and I I don't dismiss it. Politics is a kind of theater, and it can be done well or or badly. Uh, I don't see anything coming up out of this. Uh, the new one, hmm. my expectation is that. As so often in the past, the focus will be on the role of the fire stick, how to put it in, how to take it out, what what conditions, and that will be the issue around which uh, people will gravitate. But historically, there were the, the, sort of the Australian strategy, as, as I think with the post-war period, grew out of two royal commissions, the 39 commission by uh, uh, Leonard Stratton and then the uh, 1961 in Western Australia by, uh, uh, by Roger. And that sort of framed and confirmed the value of, of some kind of controlled burning. And that became very important in the debate. So one reason uh, sides want uh, another royal commission is that they hope a further commission could have the same kind of uh, confirming role that those two did historically. And I think the situation may be too too complex uh, to, to parse and untangle by a royal commission. Hmm. Yep. All right. Let's take a call or two. Mark from Bridgetown in Western Australia. Hi, Mark. Oh, good day, mate. How are you going? Not bad. I'll just turn you on to. Um... You got us? Yeah, I'm trying to turn you on to the speaker. Yeah, that... hi, Stephen. How are you going? Good. I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, look, um, I've been working with the Aboriginal people. Um, up on the uh, Dampier Peninsula and throughout the Kimberley for you know, six, seven years, mm. and um, I think they've got it right. You know, um, in terms of they burn their their song lines where they walk, and um, they protect old growth at the same time. Um, yeah, I've I'd, I'd come from the system, you know, the system, the fiery system, and just, it was a big wake-up call for me. So um, this particular winter, you know, we encourage not to burn, but there's always windows there for burning in winter, and that's what they do. They burn when they walk. Yeah, okay, thanks, Mark. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of interest in this, in this discussion and debate. Uh, you know, one of the things we discuss every time there are fires here in this country, Stephen, is that, you know, there's, there are there are not enough windows or opportunities to to do, to do burning. That, well, because people, I mean, people hate burning for all sorts of reasons. People in cities hate it because of the smoke yeah, of the smoke, and you get a lot of pushback about that. And you know, fire authorities say, "Well, look, we'd like to do more, but we we just can't because there aren't there aren't enough opportunities to do it." What do you think? What do you say about that? Well, that's true and not true. You can make opportunities. Um, uh, prescribed Fire Training Center for the U.S., the federal agency, uh, centered in Florida, and their motto is every day is a burn day. Mm-hmm. You assume that you're going to burn unless something stops, rather than assuming um, only if conditions are right, then we'll consider burning. Now, they're in a condition, they're in a place where they can burn year-round. I mean, Florida, it's almost impossible to overburn the, the place, so that that's exceptional. But what I think we can learn from Aboriginal uh, practices, not just in Australia, but generally, is that they're they're very opportunistic. They're very nimble, and they're not driven by calendars. They're not a set piece in the way that we our, our legal and and bureaucratic system has made prescribed fire. That you have to have all these conditions. They all have to be met. Ever longer checklists, all of which becomes a formula for stopping. But you can't ever. There's no reverse. There's no way to escalate it. So I think we can learn by uh, thinking about over larger areas and larger periods of time and then seizing the opportunities when they become available. Mm. In the southeastern states, some of these uh, just have helicopters in contract. And when the windows are right, the helicopter's up and it's dropping it's dropping their little incendiary ping pong balls and to try to get it as, as much as you can. But I also think it's part of a public education process that in places where you are going to have fire, do you want fires of choice or fires of chance? Are we leaving it to lightning and arsonists and accidents or are we doing it ourselves? And if we're doing it ourselves, uh, you have to create the opportunities. So 
again, Florida, parts of the southeastern U.S., there were liability laws that made it tricky to do burning and who's to blame. They rewrote the liability laws to make it easier to burn and not just to open it up. There are conditions that have to be met, but they made it possible. So if you choose to do it, you can. But instead, as you point out, there are lots of people who, for many reasons, don't like fire, don't want fire. And all of these little impediments can add up to you know, sand in the gears so that you can't make it happen. Mm. And that's that's really a choice for Australians to make. Stephen Pine is my guest. He is an, a, a worldwide authority on fire, an environmental historian and the author of many books, including The Still Burning Bush about fire in Australia, and um, an advocate of, of thinking differently about fire rather than trying to see it as... I think what you said, you, we should stop seeing fire as always an emergency response to be met with massive amounts of technology and people and see it as something else, something that's always been part of the landscape. Well, there's that. Uh, yeah. And, you know, we've created in the U.S. now we talk about a fire industrial complex. Most of our <laughs> military. Because it, and we privatize lots of stuff. So now we have a lobby you know, a, a political lobby in D.C. for, uh, you know, for fire suppression. So this this is all insane. Hmm. But even well, we in have we have similar, we have similar things in <laughs> yeah. Australia. It's, it's not it's not, it's not yeah, different. It's not different here. Yeah, it's and Europe is going the same way. Europe, Europeans have never sort of come to grips with it. So we have two prevailing sort of literary devices for formulas for understanding fire. One is fire is a disaster, and the other is the firefight is a battlefield. And everything seems to fall into those. And fire can be a disaster. There are disastrous fires that that are ruinous for communities and and um, some, some ecosystems. But we don't have good narratives uh, beyond that. We don't really have an equally powerful narrative for the firefight for fire lighting, and to show why why this. Is valuable. Why this could be exciting and interesting. Why that makes a good story, and so we're we're drawn to it. And I see over and over again. However much you agree to things, yes, we need to change. Yes, we need a new story. But then as it goes up the editorial food chain or the documentaries uh, go through their various editing processes, uh, it ends up in the, those two formulas. And uh, I agree. it always does. We need others. We need others. Yeah, we we, we urgently we urgently do. Ross in Perth. Hi, Ross. Hi, Phil. I look, I think Steve said something very succinct and um, really, really resonates with me. Do we want fires by choice or do we want fires by chance? I was involved. I'm retired now, but for thirty years, I was involved here in Western Australia and. <clears throat> regional open space management over thousands of hectares. Um, and I, years and years ago, Western Australia had a forestry department and they used to undertake regular control burns. Because as Steve said, he's absolutely right, they understood uh, the way to manage this environment we live in here in the southwest. And they took their example from the Aboriginal people and I, you know, I, I went, the park that I am involved in, I'm not going to mention any names here, in, it's an urban park on the periphery of Perth, very, very big park. They, they made a statement to us when they had their fire management address at the beginning of the fire season this year, we're not going to do any controlled burns. And I just think that's insane. We're just going to protect the, um, the visitor areas. What happens if you don't do this? is that you get really, really intense burns when the fuel load gets high. You can't fight it for one thing. And two, it almost irretrievably damages the environment. Mm. So I think Stephen has a lot of really, really good things to say. And I think people should listen to what he's saying. Thank you, Ross. Um... Yes, some people say, argue, Stephen, they say, well, that's all very well, but we're in a new era now, the era of, of climate mm -hmm. change, the era of, mm -hmm. of longer droughts, of hotter temperatures, and that the sort of mega fires we saw last summer, which really shocked a lot of Australians, I think, in the, in the yeah. size of the whole thing, and uh, that these mega fires are now a new norm and that, you know, 
you, you have to fight. So you, you have to fight. We can't think of a way to control that. What do you think about that? Well, if your only response is to fight the fires, you're going to be in an endless war and you're going to lose. Um, there are times and places where you do need to fight fires. You need to keep it out. We, we don't want it in, in certain areas. We don't want it in our communities, our municipal watersheds. We don't want you know really savage fires rambling through uh, select sanctuaries and so forth. But um, I think it becomes an argument for even more burning because we're looking for we're looking at I think an era of more intense, more frequent, uh, more severe fires. And uh, using fire is one of the few techniques we have uh, for dampening that, for for trying to build some resilience into the landscape. I, I, if I can draw from the U.S. experience, again, very few of our fire officers are committed to a suppression-only program. Those may be in areas around cities, like mm-hmm. some of Southern California. On, on the side of the mountains facing Los Angeles, it's just an urban fire service out in the woods. On the other side of the mountain, they're letting these things go. They're working with them. They're pulling back. They're trying to get fire there. It is not a prescribed fire in the sense of all the checklists being met, of all the conditions um, being satisfied. Maybe 10 or 15 percent uh, didn't burn of these large boxes that they draw and then burn out. Maybe 10 or 15 percent burned too severely, would not have been tolerated in a, a formal prescribed fire. But they get 75, uh, 80 percent of that landscape burned within a range. They're happy. Mm-hmm. The sense is that we are building in some fire resilience because it's going to get a lot worse. And if we don't start taking some steps it is just we're the only fires we're going to have are the most extreme which we cannot control and which will do the most damage mix yeah yeah, sorry Um, that doesn't no that doesn't tell you how to actually do it and how to negotiate all the social capital and political capital that's Hmm. involved on this is huge but uh, yeah no, well, I, I think I think that yeah, no, I think that's the strength of your <laughs> strength of your insight. Really, not, it's not a question of telling people what to do; it's a question of describing what has happened. Mick says, "I'm I'm a forester for 32 years. I completely agree with Stephen. We learned all about pre-European fire management from our mentors and professors way back in the 70s and 80s. Only now is that getting aired in the public domain. I'm the fire management forester for over a million acres in northern New South Wales. We've just pulled seven months straight of firefighting." I'm sitting down at the moment planning the next few years burning, including cultural burning. Uncanny, loving listening to this. Mm-hmm. Yep, okay. Uh, Helen, hello. Hi. Hi, Helen. How are you? Well, thank you. So I live in St. Albans mm. and we help conserve native grasslands in the area mm. and fire is part of our conservation regime. And what we've also discovered is that once we've got rid of the weeds via the fire, we have just found wonderful species growing and surviving in the soil. Hmm. Well, if you're living up at St Albans, you would have had those uh, tremendous fires ringing you over the summer, Uh, Helen. No, we're metropolitan Melbourne, so... Oh, okay, that's St Albans. Yeah, that's... Sorry, there are two two St Albans. Yeah, yeah. But... But we had a, we had grass fires that came near our house when I was growing up mm. in in the area, and it was always there. But I, I really think that it is a an issue that people don't understand fire and what what the the positive potential. And you know that's why everybody's really excited about this conversation tonight. That mm. there are positives out of it. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, the New South Wales National Parks and Rural Fire Service says, Ralph, continue to burn record areas, yet last summer's fires were uncontrollable. The climate is changing. The urban interface is a growing footprint on the landscape. We need to scale up our resources. You say, in a sense, this is futile, Stephen. Well, I think you need to scale up both sides of it. Right. Uh, there are areas where we need to protect and we need more sophisticated uh, uh, you know, institutions and technologies to do that, but there are lots of other areas where we need to scale up uh, the kind of burning that I think uh, it will be essential. And some of the arguments, um, 
you know, we one theory is that well, you if you do uh, fuel reduction, hazard reduction, burning, you're burning to reduce fuel, then the ecology will sort itself out accordingly. And another approach is to say, well, let's get the ecology right, and the fuels will take care of themselves uh, as a part of that. But as you argue those kinds of perspectives, make sure that there's some burning going on. Um, it may not be exact, but this is this is also a case where the ideal can be the enemy of the good. And I, I really, my my experience, my reading of history around the world really is that if you take it out completely for any length of time, it's very hard to put it back in and you suffer a lot of damages. So keep it going. Create a fire culture uh, that allows both sides to, to progress. Because I really think we are entering a kind of uh, new age. And it's not just climate change. It's also how we live on the landscape. And when you add it all up, and for me as a fire historian, burning fossil fuels is simply a, a, a part of fire history. So climate change is really a sub-narrative of fire history for me. When you add that all up, we really are creating sort of the fire equivalent of an ice age. And we need to be able to do both sides of, of the fire management um, task uh, to, to ride through this. Hmm. This is what you, you would call the pyrocene. Um, mm -hmm. Jason, hello. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Pleasure. Um, Stephen, I know you've, um, you've mentioned that you're also an environmentalist at heart, so I'm interested to know what you think of logging and its, and its role in, um, in reducing um, the fires. Do you think that it actually does assist? Do you think it's a, uh, do you think it's a liability? I mean, in Victoria... Yeah. As an example, a lot of the guys down here, um, a lot of the loggers were actually used, a lot of their equipment was used to fighting the fires, but the government's hell-bent on shutting down the industry. So I'm just wondering, is it going to be a good thing? Is it going to be a good thing? Do you think it's going to be a bad thing? Mm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, well, well, it's a, that's a great question, and it's a nuanced. Uh, you have to, it, it's something that requires a nuanced response. I'm sitting at a wooden desk with paper in front of me. I, I recognize the value of wood products industry, but I don't see much evidence that uh, logging uh, improves, fire, can, improves fire protection. And one reason is that logging takes the big stuff and leaves the little. Fire burns the little stuff and leaves the big. So even after a uh, or, or horrific crown fire burning through woods, what is left are all uh, the tree trunks that logging would have taken out. So uh, in the U.S., we, we have programs of what are called thinning. Uh, we, given the nature of our forests, we can remove some of the new growth and uh, understory stuff, thin it out to keep fires on the ground rather than from going in the canopy, but that's not logging. So I think there's a role for logging, but uh, I, I think it's, uh, I don't accept the argument that that means it improves uh, fire control. It might improve it if you're talking about clearing out an area around a community. You simply want it stripped out of everything. And let's also remember that there's a difference between biomass and available fuel. You know, if you want to if you want to get a campfire or uh, a fireplace going, uh, you throw in all kinds of small stuff, kindling and, and needles and leaves. Um, if you put a big chunk of green wood in there, the fire will go out. So not all of that large stuff that logging is taking out is really available as fuel. In many ways, that's a heat sink. Uh, it's the small stuff that really. Um, that really matters. And that's the stuff that a good program, maybe of some selective thinning and some burning, uh, can target and keep under wraps. And let's also be clear that, that any of these measures are not going to eliminate fire. They just change the character of the fire, make it less damaging, and uh, make it easier to control where you, where you need to control it. Yep, thanks, uh, thanks Jason. Uh, 1-300-800-222. Shannon, hello. Hello. Hi, Shannon. Oh, hi there. Good, good evening. Um, great topic. Um, one thing I'd like to bring to the table, um, I'm going to give you an analogy. Uh, when I was in the military, uh, we used uh, Aboriginal trackers to teach us uh, how, how to live in different types of uh, uh, situations and landscapes. Now, one thing I I remember what, when one of the first things I that was tattooed into my brain was uh, we were on a, um, a shooting range and there was uh, tall grass 
And I remember these two, um, uh, the elders, and they started lighting because we thought, oh, we'll just get a gun and, and kind of mow down the grass kind of thing. And they were like, no, 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 no. And they started lighting, lighting um, the tall grass. Now, they actually told us, you're now going to walk with us with the fire, which we were like, you guys are mental. Um, but there was a mindset behind it, and they knew exactly when to do it, how to do it, and whatnot. And then later they were explaining, uh, and this is going back 25 years ago, that uh, in their stories uh, they were explaining how they used to work with the land and and different regions uh, would get burnt out. And they did this for a reason. They would never want to degradate the, the land because they, they know how to use the land and they were doing this for thousands of years and this is the point I'm trying to make we're not listening to people that have life cultural experience hmm. on how to it's not about which state forestry whatever political or governmental or council has nothing to do with this it's life exp- uh, experience that it can't be measured. Yeah, no, I get, I get what you're saying. I mean, like one of the things, Stephen, you would say is that this is an Indigenous fire practice is interesting and useful and all of that, but it's not lost knowledge in a sense. I mean, look, we have had knowledge of how to burn. It's, it's our way of thinking and the politics of the whole thing that it's prevented us from doing it. Yeah, I think so. And what I find is that uh, where you have a living... Uh, fire culture, uh, the fire, the fire, the burning gets done properly. Mm. And mm. where you don't have that culture, it doesn't. And it doesn't matter how much science or how much equipment you have. Without that culture, not just the knowledge, but the the sense in which fire is a part of your life and a part of the landscape. That's that's what makes it possible to to do it successfully. Yep. Okay. <laughs> uh, you're, you're at the end of it, in the sense of the end of it. I wonder whether a career. I wonder whether you think that we the the infernal politics of this are ever going to be resolved. Because we've had a, you know we've had a, a, a he said she said you said they said argument here yeah. in Australia ever since summer. You know, and I suspect that my bones will continue to have it. Yeah, and there, you know, there, there are times all of us, I'm sure, wish can we just take the bloody politicians out and get on with things. And politics is intruding where it doesn't belong. But you know, my sense is that these are legitimately political questions. They're about public safety. Uh, they're about public health. They're often about public lands and assets. And these are things that we should be able to discuss. Politic- po- politics is the appropriate arena for it. Sure. Um, but we've allowed the politics to get hijacked um, in some ways. And the other thing is that you know, fire is so graphic. It's so uh, visual and visceral that uh, media is always drawn to it. Of course, we are. Of course and so we are. the fire story gets hijacked for other agendas. <laughs> and does. we don't really talk about fire. We talk, use fire to talk about all this other stuff, so we don't solve the fire problem. We do. We do. Time has beaten us, Stephen. It's been a fascinating conversation. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Stephen Pine's been our guest, uh, uh, environmental historian and expert on, on world fires. Uh, thanks for your time. It's terrific to talk with you. 